Sin acknowledges and pays respects to the owners of the land on which the House of Sin and Studios stand, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Sin also acknowledges and pays respects to the elders and traditional owners of the land that our content reaches, as well as the radio stations we broadcast from across the country. Welcome to Represent Your Here on Sin Nation with Katie, Jana, Oscar and Gianni. Uh, coming up in the next hour, we're going to be talking about Julie Bishop resigning from Parliament, uh, protesters marching against anti-Semitism in France, the recent Hello World controversy, and then we also have an interview um, between our host Gianni and the Indigenous artist John Saunders. Uh, this is represent. Uh, we are Sin Media's flagship political discussion program where we explore current affairs and politics in every sense of the word. Um, so stay tuned. Coming up now is Not Angry Anymore by Thelma Plum. You're here on Sin Nation. You can t- Welcome back to Represent. You're here on Sin Nation with Katie, Jana, Oscar and Gianni. Uh, the first thing we're going to be talking about today is Julie Bishop's announcement that she is going to retire from Parliament. So former frontbencher and Perth Liberal MP Julie Bishop has announced her resignation after 21 years in Parliament. Julie Bishop announced to the House of Representatives after Thursday's question time her plans to retire from politics, so she will not be contesting the seat of Curtin in May's federal election. And Julie Bishop has been on the backbench since the leadership spill last year, but prior to that, she was Australia's first female foreign minister and also the first deputy, sorry, female deputy leader of the Liberal Party, which was a position she held for 11 years. Uh, so we're going to play some of her speech from Thursday, and this clip is from the ABC. Last two weeks, it has become evident that Labor has learned nothing from its past failings and is doomed to repeat these failings should it be re-elected. It is thus... Her speech, uh, she announced that she is confident that the Liberal Party is going to win the election in May and that's why she has decided to retire. And she also said that um, she thinks that the Labor Party will continue to make the same mistakes that they've always made. And then she thanked her fellow parliamentarians before she left. Um, and so Julie Bishop has always been seen as a loyal deputy um, to the other members of her party, particularly the men who have led the party while she's been a part of it. Uh, so she has been the deputy leader to Tony Abbott, Malcolm Turnbull and now Scott Morrison. And after last year's leadership spill, which saw Turnbull lose his place as, as Prime Minister and leave Parliament, Julie Bishop contested the leadership ballot against Peter Dutton and Scott Morrison, but obviously she was unsuccessful. Um, but in her resignation speech, Bishop also told the Parliament that she was proud of the fact that she was the first woman to contest a leadership ballot of the Liberal Party in its 75 years history. And you guys might remember that last year in November, after the leadership spill, uh, Julie Bishop announced that she would retire from the front bench and her position as Foreign Minister. And to that press conference, she wore a pair of bejeweled red high heels, um, which were photographed and then shared widely. Uh, she later said she didn't wear them to make a statement. Um, but then to make her retirement speech on Thursday, she wore white 
and we're not sure if it was intentional, but it um, white are the suffragettes' colours. And recently, during Donald Trump's State of the Union address, um, all the Democratic women who were present wore white as well. Um, and in her speech on Thursday, Bishop said there were many good candidates, including women, who had put their hand up for pre-selection to contest the seat of Curtin at the next election. Uh, so given that Julie Bishop was a respected politician and foreign minister, um, as well as being seen as a moderate so-called small-L liberal, um, and that the coalition are also perceived as having a woman problem, um, what impact do you think? Do you guys think Julie Bishop's resignation could have um, on the coalition's chances at this year's federal election? Well, firstly, there's definitely going to be less fashion um, in <laughs> Parliament. She, um, not only in Australia, but right around the world, people see Julie Bishop as a great woman in Parliament, but also, she, like, her fashion sense amazing. What about you guys? <laughs> Um, I think it's a bit interesting that she's cited the uh, likeliness of the Liberal Party winning the next federal election as a good reason to leave Parliament. Um, I think the most recent poll had them 45 to Labor's 55% on a two-party preferred vote, so I think she may just want out of the mess that the Liberal Party's become, and she just didn't want to say that. Do you genuinely think that's the truth, though? Because she has such a strong loyalty to the Liberal Party, or to, yeah, to the Liberal Party, and I feel like she would do anything to try and support them. I think it's possible that the Liberal Party she joined is a very different Liberal Party to the one that's currently holding office. Um, it's very messy. I, I mean, I've never been a particularly big fan of the Liberal Party, but I think there was a time uh probably five ten years ago when it was a more respectable party that it is now yeah because I, I know that julie bishop started off in parliament because she she i don't know if um you guys are familiar with the way that she got in there but she was um a lawyer and had a, like deep-rooted history in law um and that she had some case which actually made her her um her want to become in parliament more and that's why she is so passionate about the liberal party so i feel like she genuine is genuine when she says she thinks that the liberals will win and that's why she's stepping back i just don't think that adds up if they're gonna win why would she leave now because she's confident in them I don't think the two are necessarily mutually exclusive. Mm. I think she can want out of the Liberal Party because of the way she felt she's been treated while thinking mm. that Labor might l lose the next election. That's true. And I think at the end of her speech, she does call them, or she says thank you to her beloved Liberal Party. So she's definitely um, loyal to her party even after everything that happened last year. Yeah. But I don't know. I think it might be also worth pointing out that she was definitely loyal to and a very close friend of Malcolm Turnbull. So I think that um, ever since the events of last year with the leadership spill, I would s say that she wouldn't have been particularly happy with the way that the rest of the party treated Turnbull. Yeah, I totally agree, Katie. Yeah, um, and she got, like, when she, when, uh, she, got, um, when she contested for the leadership... She got a pretty shockingly low number of people who uh, voted for her yeah. MPs. Like I was surprised, given that like at the time, um, 
and I still do today think that Julie Bishop was the best chance for the Liberal Party, you know, being able to make a quick recovery from the leadership. Me too, and I think that lots of people thought that. Yeah, I think that people were often very shocked because um, people in the public really loved Julie Bishop, but she didn't have that same support within Parliament, which was quite shocking to everybody. Um, I think that comes back to uh, the perception that a lot of people have that the coalition in general, but particularly the Liberal Party, have a bit of a problem with women. Mm. Um, It's probably not true of everybody, but it's definitely the way that a lot of people... Um, in Melbourne think of them and so Julie Bishop being such a respected member of parliament and also a woman also a woman I don't think that her leaving will be great for the coalition coming up to the election particularly as um, one of their other MPs Julia Banks resigned um, about a month ago now and then Callie O'Dwyer has also who's the um, federal MP uh, Liberal MP for Higgins in Melbourne South East. So it's like Armadale and around those suburbs. She's also announced that she's going to retire and not recontest at the next election. So it will be interesting to see how yeah. that affects their chances or if it does. You could definitely say that um, we can just hope that women don't feel... Um, disregarded or don't feel like they don't have a chance in politics anymore because Julie Bishop was such a strong woman um, in politics and and I think that women should feel empowered because of her strong 11 years that she's been in Parliament. Me too and while I don't agree with all of her politics personally I do respect um, what she's done both as a woman and an MP and as a foreign minister. Yeah. Um, so do we know much about the pre-selection battle that's going to probably ensue for her seat? No, she was. all she said in her speech is that a number of good people, including women, have put their hand up for pre-selection. But I haven't heard anything about who actually has um, put their name forward yet. And it'll be interesting to see if um, an independent wants to run. Yeah, this can, this might also, uh, because obviously um, liberals are facing uh, a challenge in a lot of its, you know, usually safe liberal seats from independence with sort of the same, you know, economic policy as the liberals, but a bit more socially progressive. Yeah. Well, it's like uh, um, Zali Stigal is now running, she's confirmed that she's going to run as an independent in Warringah in Tony Abbott's seat. So perhaps there'll be another uh, woman independent who will run in the seat of Curtin. Yeah. But yeah, we'll see. Um, so that's probably all we have time for to talk about this, unless you want to say something else, Oscar. Oh, uh, no. Okay. <laughs> You're listening to Represent on Sin Nation with Katie, Jana, Oscar and Gianni. Uh, this is Last Night by Grace. So that was Last Night by Grace. This is Sin Nation and you're... You're listening to Jana, Oscar, Gianni and Katie. So the next um, topic that we're going to discuss today is about the protesters marching against anti-Semitism in France. 
Now, on Tuesday night, there was a march against anti-Semitism in France. Um, this march, um, and it has been widely publicised across various news sources, such as CNN, The Guardian and France 24, and amongst um, many other news stations. This week, there were 80 graves that were vandalised in a Jewish cemetery in eastern France. The graves were vandalised with swart stickers made from blue and yellow spray paint. This vandalism occurred after the 14th consecutive weekend of the marches from the Yellow Vest Movement. Now, the Yellow Vest Movement, for those of you that don't know, is a political movement which is motivated by the rise in fuel prices and high cost of living in France. This movement claims that the government is disproportionately burdening the working and middle class due to the government's tax reforms. The protests have been very large and they are calling for lower fuel taxes, reintroduction of the solidarity tax on wealth, a minimum wage increase, the implementation of citizens' initiative referendums and also demanding the resignation of Marcon and his government. This week, the, uh, the movement also abused Alan Finkenkraut, who is a philosopher who supports Israel, as the movement ran into the demonstrators. As this is not the first attack on the Jewish community or the Jewish cemetery in France in the recent months, the global community, including Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, has called for Marcon to take a strong stance against anti-Semitism. As France is the home of 500,000 Jews, the largest Jewish population in Europe, Marcon really needs to show support to the Jewish community and offer some support to them. There has been a 74% increase in anti-Semitic attacks, with 541 attacks on record in 2018. Since 2016, at least 11 people have been killed due to anti-Semitic violence. Now, Marcon has commented on this. Um, Marcon, who, those of you don't know, is the President of France, condemned the attacks and has responded to the global community's wishes. Marcon was very clear in his response to this attack act saying that he intends to punish and criminalize this behavior. Marcon also instilled that he intends to make an example of these people to divert people from acting in a similar way in the future. So I guess what we can discuss today is whether um, what you think presidents can do in this situation, how they can make an example of of people that that do do things in an anti-Semitic nature. Um, what do you guys think? I actually have a quick question before we get into that. Um, just so I'm clear on it, was it the, the Yellow Vest movement that's believed to be responsible for the vandalism or are they the ones marching against uh, anti-Semitism? Well, I think that they they um, were encar- encouraged the people that vandalised. There's no clear link that's been shown, but I think that what has occurred is that they had walked into this Israeli man um, who supports Israel and which shows that he, they are like against the Jewish community, and then this is like incited violence again against the Jewish community, and um, it's said that perhaps maybe this act did um, arouse the violence that did occur. So, what's been the? Um, I mean, I know the Yellow Vest is a de- decentralized movement. But what have some like the? I guess one of the, some of the main people uh, like Marine Le Pen behind the uh, Yellow Vest movement, how have they responded to the um, acts? Oh. Um, I'm not really sure, actually. That's a good question. Um, but perhaps um, that's something that we can look in for next time. 
Yeah. Um, this uh, philosopher Finkel Finkel Finkelkraut Finkelkraut was it? Yes, um, Finkelkraut. Um, has he uh, expressed any uh, notion of what he wants Macron to do, or is he uh, simply an opponent of the Yellow Vest movement itself? Yeah, well, I think just uh, much alike um, many other people in the global community, he's just wanting uh, Marcon to just show some more support towards the Jewish community in the best way possible. And it just seems that France themselves have come together in this time and have shown a march against this sort of behaviour. And I think that Marcon has made the first um, steps to trying to instill that this is not behaviour that they're going to tolerate in France and he's got the support of the whole of France behind them or well, most of France it appears and that's a great first step but I mean it, it does seem that there needs to be some sort of um, you know more formal criminalisation methods that they need to instill so this does stop occurring. Because, um, yeah, as I said in my report before, there has been a large increase in violence, up to 74%. And that's just massive. Like, really scary. Just on the uh, Marine Le Pen question earlier, um, so last year she did, or she did join a march against anti-Semitism um, despite objections from the Jewish community because she's, of course, a far-right political leader. Um, so I don't know if she was involved in the most recent one though but she has in the past expressed support of um anti-anti-semitism <laughs> <laughs> um and i've just seen uh this isn't marine le pen but it's her niece who i actually hadn't heard of before um her name's marion Maréchal. i'm not sure if anyone knows of her but uh she's kind of um i guess right-wing populist speaker uh goes along the same sort of political lines as her aunt it appears and it's saying that she uh, gave a speech at the prestigious Oxford Union earlier this week so she gave a 20-minute speech um, you know calling for the formation of a new elite who understand the needs of regular people so kind of along the lines of what Marine Le Pen uh, says that as kind of um, a reasoning uh, for their right-wing political movement and she actually called the yellow jacket movement similar to the people who support brexit in the uk um so she's saying that it's because people have been abandoned and people aren't represented that populism is necessary uh, so she seems to support the yellow jackets at least yeah that's interesting um, and she also says that the violence that she saw was committed by far-left extremists. So that's kind of a different take, take on the narrative. Yeah, it's very interesting. I mean, this can... I mean, yeah, this was a similar thing uh, because there was the rally earlier this year uh, in St Kilda in Melbourne uh, where... There was um, where there was a uh, sh there was a lot of far right activists, and there were a f few people there that got pictured doing um, Nazi salutes. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah, and uh, basically, uh, Fraser Anning responded to the criticism uh, by saying that those were people on the left, not on the right. Yeah. The uh, 
<laughs> Sig Heil being a proud symbol of most leftist movements, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting because when people um, do work in these, um, like rally together in marches or in, in any of these sorts of formations, it's questionable whether it's actually, like obviously when it, there is this large um, symbol of people and a lot of people being against something, it does show strength in numbers, but sometimes strength in numbers does just cause people to act super irrationally. And then, you know, when there are a lot of people there, it does stop like the narrative being told in a clear way because someone will say something and then someone else will say something different. And I guess that's what we're seeing here as well. Um, all right, so thank you for listening. This is CNFM and you're listening. Um, the next song that's up today is Adelphia by the Cat Empire. You're listening to Sin Nation. That was Adelphia by the Cat Empire. You're on Sin Nation and this is Represent. Um, now, earlier in the week, I had the opportunity to interview Jonathan Saunders, an Indigenous writer from Dar- uh, Indigenous artist from Darwin. Um, he's actually both a writer and an artist for a, the new web series Zero Point, uh, which follows the adventures of an Aboriginal Australian superhero of the same name. Uh, this is the interview. To begin with, John... Can you tell us who Zero Point is as a hero, yes. as a person? Uh, yes, I can. So uh, Zero Point is a uh, Indigenous uh, guy from Darwin uh, who's the newest member of uh, AFCO, which is an Australian government uh, superhero group. And yeah, as a person, uh, kind of taking up, you know, referencing that classic uh, cowboy archetype in a way, you know, that classic Clint Eastwood loner you know, doing the right thing, you know, yeah. very, it's very, uh, it's a bit, a bit gruff, but also has a, you know, sensitive and uh, cheeky side as well, always, uh, you know, has a strong sense of uh, justice, but uh, is also willing to, uh, you know, examine, uh, you know, his place in society and uh, in terms of, you know, making sure of his uh, dealing out justice the, you know, right way. And as I said, there's also a very introspective character. But he also has a, uh, you know, jumping action as well. So a nice bit of balance of, uh, you know, contradictions there that make a character interesting. Yeah, very interesting character indeed. Um, would you mind talking a bit about uh, what Zero Point represents uh, for you politically? Ah, uh, yeah. So for me, uh, Zero Point represents, uh, well, it's actually the character, uh, his look, and everything is really kind of uh, a love letter to everything that I love in, uh, you know, comics, films, animation, anime, uh, and even a bit of a video game influence as well. As I feel when it comes to uh, not only Indigenous heroes, but uh, to any superheroes or fictional characters that happen to be part of a minority group, Authors and writers tend to get too caught up in trying to make sure that this character is a, you know, an ambassador and representation for all of that group. Yet you don't find that in other characters. You don't hear people complain that Superman uh, is a representation of all people from Kansas or Kryptonians. So for me, the important thing for Zero Point represents is um, that he happens to be a 
really cool, engaging superhero that just happens to be Aboriginal because I feel that uh, it's also important to send a message out that there's no right way to be Aboriginal or wrong way to be Aboriginal and that, you know, people should engage with them because they, you know, have interesting backstories, interesting journeys, or just, you know, they're very engaging. And, you know, their other characteristics like their race, while important, should be the main factor that, uh, you know, have a, a character that was, you know, very cool, engaging, exciting, fun to watch, and he just happens to be, you know, a black fella. Well, that covers my next question as well, which was, uh, you know, why was it important to differentiate Zero Point from the uh, previous Aboriginal superheroes, like the Wombat and Kaboomerang? So they say a hero is only as good as his villains. What kind of opposition does Zero Point face in this web series? Yeah, so Samson's a very uh, yeah complex and fun character. Uh, you know, very flamboyant, uh, you know, theatrical villain. But his motivations is something that uh, I think a lot of tend to sympathise without you know spoiling too much with his plight. It's meant to represent in, in a way almost what Zero Point could be in terms of going against uh, you know his superiors and finding out the shady stuff that the government's doing, but then, as a villain, Taysom is way too far. Yeah, it's an excellent, excellent character. Um, so Human Zero Point have this uh, connection. I believe uh, Samson refers to them as the children of Maralinga. Would you mind talking a bit about Maralinga and what it represents in, in this web series? Yeah, so in this web series, um, took a bit of, uh, you know, creative liberty with Maralinga, but um, I guess all superheroes do to some extent when they're referencing real-world events. So in Zero Point, uh, there was a facility built in uh, 1979 that was there to test out Zero Point energy and other quantum theories and mechanics there to, you know, try and find renewable energy. Of course, it goes wrong and, you know, completely irradiates the land, which is, of course, a reference to the actual British nuclear tests like uh, Operation Buffalo and how this is a great tragedy that was essentially kind of swept under the rug and it impacted the people where it's very quite severely. Yet, at the time uh, of the real Maralinka test, the government really didn't take much responsibility for what happened. And in the world of Zero Point, the same thing's kind of happened. It's like this great disaster that's just kind of quietly being swept under the rug, but also has ramifications in that. It created the first zero points, you know, Carl Bergman's father, mm. but also affected Samson in a way. And I guess I just wanted to print to light that since there are some people now that actually didn't know about the, you know, the original nuclear tests at Maralinga in the 50s. Would you mind going into zero point, either the father or the sons, their relationship with the Australian government? Basically, Carl Burton, the character, was in North Force in the Northern Territory, so he has a, a great drive to serve his country and do good, in a way, like Australia. So for him, when his powers manifested and he did the vigilante thing for a bit, uh, he was convinced uh, to join AFCO. Yeah, so he just basically saw it as another extension of what he was doing in North Force. And then, yeah, as you know, in the series, it begins to uncover all these secrets and conspiracies and starts to question if that's the right choice. But he knows that, you know, basically on the fence about it because, you know, he doesn't want to go back into a full vigilantism because he still believes that there's, you know, if you tear down that whole system, it's what's going to be left. There's nothing there and it's just going to get worse than that. But 
there needs to be changes in the system. And how that ties into his father, the original Zero Pine, is that he was a kind of beloved superhero back in the day, but didn't really join AFCO or any government force. So he was a bit of a freelancer. Of course, that caused a, a bit of tension since one of Australia's biggest superheroes in the 80s was like not really affiliated with any government programs. So I thought it was kind of interesting trying to do something a little bit different with a government-sanctioned superhero team, because in a lot of comics and things, it's usually presented as a super bad thing like a, what civil war trade or it's just kind of not really delved into so i think uh, zero point struggles with wanting to know secrets that the government won't tell him and being a, a good person a good hero i believe the the slogan defiance not obedience is introduced by this rand character could you go into that a bit rand uh, is a you know a good vigilante introduced into episode two and he was essentially a homage to, you know, those kind of hard-boiled street-level heroes, um, especially a great reference to Mr. A. Mr. A was essentially the inspiration for characters like Rorschach and Watchmen. With Mr. A, you could kind of delve more into moral objectivism, but uh, Rorschach is kind of a more extreme version, while Rand is kind of referencing that. I wanted to keep the moral objectives and stuff at least light and just there that if you know the backstories of comics you pick it up but again an actual quote from Anne Rand but um in the context of Zero Point it was meant to be more Rand uh you know trying to coax Zero Point onto his side and showing that you know hey if he wants to make change it's got to be disobedience and think like Rand and just be more of a hardline vigilante. Rand is, even though Samson sets the plot in motion, I guess with Rand, that was really the inciting incident for Zero Point on his hero's journey, where Rand basically tells him about ice is just based on, you know, a old super drug that was used in the 70s and 60s, and don't you find it weird that you guys are focusing a lot on these kind of issues, you know, essentially keeping you guys in a job, helping, you know, I guess, uh, I wouldn't say an Obi-Wan character, but almost like a Morpheus-like character, like he's opening Zero Point's eyes to, you know, the hidden world. Getting him to question his role in all of this. Um... Exactly, no, that's it, and uh, yeah, and that's good for a hero because it means the actually uh, driving the plot. Uh, one thing I kind of wanted to make it a bit different from the usual superhero fair is instead of having Zero Point sit around and wait for the next bad thing to happen and react to it, having that, you know, Rand kind of making question his role, you know, Zero Point is the one that's instigating and moving forward the plots and finding things out. Starting his own fights. That's it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Just to finish up, what are your hopes for the future of Zero Point in particular and perhaps Australian Indigenous superheroes in general? Yeah, so for Zero Point, the next big hope is in the radar of uh, video on demand services. They might want to sign up and say, uh, you know, hey, we want to make it exclusive on our service and that will allow us to make the next series. For the next series, season one, want to definitely make things a lot longer and build more into that. And I've already written outlines for that, so uh, I want to get that moving as soon as possible. And for Indigenous superheroes in general, yeah, I hope that with Zero Point, you know, other creators have uh, been inspired to, you know, take the plunge and just put their work out there and just create something that's what they want to inspire to create cool superheroes or cool characters or just cool stories and that feature you know have the feature indigenous protagonists and that yeah they don't feel that indigenous characters don't need to be shoehorned into certain particular 
roles and stories and that they can be anything. And uh, yeah, I look forward to yeah seeing and watching those stories in the future. You can find the uh, full Zero Point web series on John Saunders' Tumblr profile of the same name. Um, coming up now is How by On Diamond. That was How by On Diamond. You're listening to represent on Sin Nation. Um, so this, we kind of saw the explosion of the Hello World controversy. Uh, so basically how this started out was that uh, it was revealed to uh, Senate estimates that Matthias Kuhlman had uh, had rung up the CEO to book his personal flight and didn't actually pay for it in the end. Uh, it didn't actually end up paying for it in the end, though, and he blamed it on an administrative error, but uh, the other issue here is that uh, Hello World subsidiary AOT uh, is has is um contracts with the department of finance for various services so and there was a tender process i think re- somewhat recently um and yeah what do you all think of it well it's interesting um in the senate estimates hearing uh that the former hello world executive russell carstensen that he said that the company's chief chief executive now, Andrew Burns arranged this meeting for the transaction and said that hockey owes me. And of course, um, Joe Hockey has now come out and said the quote, uh, the allegation that I somehow owe Mr. Burns is absolute nonsense. Uh, so it's, I don't know, it definitely makes me think about what Andrew Burns, um, it, whether it was in his role with Hello World or something else, what he had done to make hockey owe him. Oh, yes, this is the other part of it, uh, is that it was revealed to Senate Estimates as well that uh, the company's chief executive had... The... (laughs) um, That uh, Andrew Burns arranged the meeting saying, Hockey owes me, uh, to which, yeah, Hockey said that that's nonsense. Um, And, of course, the... um, Mr. Burn, uh, the uh, CEO is also the Liberal Party treasurer, so this is kind of an interesting uh, complexion here. Mm, I think it's safe to say it's a bit of a conflict of interest, but I was thinking more of what did Andrew Burns once do for Joe Hockey to make Hockey owe yeah. him, supposedly. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, it's... Don't... It doesn't. You don't really know. Yeah. <laughs> um, Seems uh, like awfully sloppy conduct on the part of the uh, Liberal Party MPs and cabinet. Um, they should, you know, it doesn't seem like it's the type of thing where you have to call someone up to book a ticket. Well, yeah, the common thing is quite strange. Like, I don't. I'm like on the balance of probabilities. I don't think Matthias Coleman. Like, I don't think Matthias Coleman would have tried to influence the tender process, but. Um, it's still strange that I, f- I find it really strange and perplexing that <laughs> he rings up the CEO to book a flight. Just oh yeah, I know. And Matthias Coleman, it was his fa- uh, I think it was a family holiday yeah, to was. Singapore. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's 
it seems that this has gone broader than Matthias Coleman as well. It's like, as Labor's tried to broaden its attack to Home Affairs Minister Peter Dutton, questioning whether he's paid for the full um, commercial rate for a trip he took to Las Vegas from Brisbane as well. So, Yeah, well, because Hello World, um, I think the Qantas business travel um, is a subsidiary of Hello World and that's the official supplier of flights to um, the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. Yeah. Uh, so I guess seems a little bit like they're just seeing how much they can get away with in what counts as a business flight. Yeah, I want to know what Peter Dutton was doing in Las Vegas. <laughs> well, well, yeah, with Matthias Coleman's uh, situation, though, from my understanding, is that the company paid for his flight because they weren't able to validate his credit card details. Uh, he didn't try and list it as a business expense. Uh, but... Yeah, of course. The implication there is that he might is that that flight might have been somehow used to influence the tender process. Hmm. And then the company blamed a so-called administrative error for not processing um, the the payment on his credit card. Uh, yeah, yeah, it said that it had been revealed that he had booked travel three times by personally contacting Mr. Burns. Though, so does seem this is a, it's a very dirty. it's certainly a very strange thing to you know <laughs> instead of. <laughs> be able to organise it myself through the phone or the internet, just ring up the CEO. Mm. Um, I mean, when when my credit card gets rejected, it's usually done in about 30 seconds, so I don't know how uh, <laughs> Matthias Coleman messed this one up. <laughs> yeah, but I also wonder if like, the CEO has like, the credit card number like written down for when he <laughs> <next laughs> wants to look at the by ringing up. Uh. Um, um, and it's interesting because there's uh, all this stuff coming out this year and late last year as well, uh, about government corruption and they're going to, until, well, they haven't properly established it yet, but there have been lots of calls for um, an ICAC, an independent commission against corruption. So it will be interesting to see if that does go ahead, um, how many other dealings similar in nature to Hello World and then probably there'll probably be more to do with Hello World as well. But it'll be interesting to see uh, what comes out if a proper ICAC goes ahead. Have either of the major parties uh, given their support for an ICAC or not yet? Well, Labour, from my understanding, is supporting it. Yeah. Um, Liberals liberals have kind of gotten behind a a kind of ICAC. Like, they basically don't want uh, ICAC to... They don't want it to have... You know, they don't want it to be able to hold public inquiries... No, then they might find something. <laughs> um, they want it to kind of all be private, and, t- and the results of its, uh, the results that it produces, to also be you know private. Um, but I find interesting about the Hello World situation is that uh, he, uh, Cor- Matthias Coleman t- uh, basically released a letter saying, saying that the. Um, Said that reminder payment. That basically said the reminder payment notices had been issued despite the payment being outstanding. So it was just like, oh yeah, we could have said that this was outstanding, but we didn't. <laughs> so they just this forgot to call. We could have. We could have. Yeah, we could have issued notices saying that you still need to pay us, but we didn't. Yeah, it all seems very convenient, doesn't it? It's just very strange mm. to me. Mm. Like I don't, I'm not sure if I'm willing to jump on the implication that Matthias Coleman has done something wrong here, or yeah. is r- unduly, uh, is, uh, has cr- unethically influenced anything. But it's, it's all a very strange thing. Um, um, and I think that's all we have time for. Uh, thank you for tuning in. We've been your hosts, Gianni, Oscar, and Jana. 
uh, and Katie with Represent. You can listen. You can keep up with what your thoughts of the show on on our socials. Uh, find us at Sin Represent on Twitter and Instagram. If you want to hear this episode again, catch us or catch up on any of our episodes. You can find our podcast on Om- uh, on Omni at Represent. And remember to stay, stay political. political. <laughs> You're on Sin Nation.